0: Good morning, beloved. Good morning. Anybody who's going with it, Justin is heading out. Uh, I'm Jim Hollenbach. I'm uh, a lay elder here. Get to serve alongside Ronnie in an effort to lead Covenant Hope Church. It is a blessing to be able to bring God's word to you this morning. Uh, I suspect he's going to have a surprise for all of you. He has a surprise in his word constantly. Even things we read, we see new things that the Lord makes clear to us as we we consider them in more depth. And that's what we hope to do this morning. We have other surprises. I'm always surprised about how the screens are configured every Sunday morning. (laughs) It seems to be changing on a regular basis. But we will trust that that will continue to evolve in a way that we'll find useful for you. Um have you ever f- been alarmed to find you had a contractual obligation you forgot about? Maybe you found a much better place to live and wanted to move out of your current apartment right away and then suddenly discovered that you had to give 6 months notice before you could do so. Or as happened to me, I suddenly see a charge on my credit card for Sirius XM at a full monthly rate after my initial introductory offer had expired, and I had not anticipated that, and I was obliged to pay it. and or maybe you wanted to change your mobile phone service provider. but then you found out there was this horrendous early termination fee that you were obliged to pay. Uh, I trust many of us have had, the experience similar to that. Embarrassment, financial plane, personal plans turned upside down because of a contractual obligation we'd made but forgotten about. How much worse is it to be called to account for an obligation not by a landlord or a service provider but by God? The Old Testament Book of Amos is a gracious gift to us from God to warn us about just that. Amos's prophecy of God calling his people to account is not just a quaint story from long ago, but I believe it has something for each of us this morning as well. In last week's passage in chapter 2, we read verses 4 through 16 where Amos lays out an initial list of offenses that the people of the southern kingdom of Judah, and the northern kingdom of Israel had committed against Yahweh. This week, Amos drives home the seriousness of the sins God's people have committed and the reason for the punishments that will follow. It is a lesson for them and for us about the accountability of God's people. We'll need the Lord's help to understand these lessons, so let's go to Him now in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us and giving us faith in Jesus so that we can be reconciled to you. Thank you for giving us the book of Amos to teach us how much you care about the walks of those you've chosen out of the world. Lord, we pray you will open our eyes to the truths you want to take root in our lives, and we pray you'd plant those truths deep in our hearts. I pray for the Holy Spirit's help to rightly expose the treasure you've given us in this passage. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, James just read the passage we'll be considering. Uh, God tells us in Matthew 4.4 4, uh, that man does, shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we're going to digest his meal for us this morning in three courses. Uh, the first course is verses 1 and 2, which impress on us the accountability of God's people and of God himself when we are bound, they are bound together in covenant. Second course is verses 3 to 6, which reminds us there is a cause behind every effect, and the ultimate cause is God. And verses 7 and 8 help us to consider how God speaks to his people and how they should react. So my sermon outline is a summary of those three observations. Covenantal accountability, the ultimate cause, and hearing from God. Covenant accountability, the ultimate cause, and hearing from God. We'll spend most of our time on the first cause, course of covenant accountability. Let's begin by looking at Amos 3.1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Amos begins with a summons to listen. He has an important message, a word from the Lord. Amos is faithfully discharging his prophetic office, which he cites in Amos 7.15. But the Lord took me from, the following, from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. John Calvin observes that Amos is an organ of the Holy Spirit. He's induced nothing from his own mind, but spoke what the Lord had commanded him. Amos says this word that the Lord has spoken, is against all of Israel, not merely the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, but the whole family that I brought up. You may find that a bit confusing. Uh, For in last week's sermon, the Lord pronounced his judgment against the southern kingdom of Judah in verses 4 and 5, and against the northern kingdom of Israel in verses 6 through 16. To clarify what seems to be a contradiction... Uh, we should note that the Bible uses the name Israel several ways, which change over time. A brief history will help. The first use of the name Israel is found in Genesis 32, 28, where God tells Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, your your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. From there to the end of Genesis, the Bible uses Jacob and Israel synonymously and interchangeably. When Joseph pleads for his father to come to Egypt to survive the famine in Canaan, in Genesis 46, two to three, God promises he will make Israel into a great nation. This is the second way that Israel is used. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Israel became a Yahweh's nation because of what God did in the Exodus. God observes this in Deuteronomy 4.34. <coughs> or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself in the midst of another nation, by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by... Great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. God made Israel a nation in the midst of, while they were in the midst of Egypt. God then leads them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai and there establishes a covenant with Israel, the Mosaic Covenant. Read this in Exodus 19. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the Lord and all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. God then gives Moses the Ten Commandments and other supporting laws. Five chapters later in Exodus 24, 7, we see a reaffirmed covenant. Then he took the book of the covenant, he being Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of all the people, of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Now, a covenant is a chosen relationship between two parties in which the parties make binding promises to each other. In Deuteronomy 28 and 30, God spells out the blessings Israel would receive for obeying the covenant and the curses that God would bring them, bring upon them for disobedience. Under God's sovereign hand, the nation of Israel then conquers the heathen nations that had inherited the promised land. Thus, when Amos says in Amos three one, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. That whole family is the nation of Israel. All twelve tribes. So that's what they were. They were together as a nation as they came into the promised land. After being led by a series of judges, God accedes to the nation's desire for a king and anoints for Saul, and then David as king of Israel. And I think most of you know David's reign was the high point in the history of Israel. After the death of David's son Solomon, the nation of Israel split into into two kingdoms because of the foolishness of Solomon's son Rehoboam. You'll find that in 1 Kings 12 if you wish to. Understand it a little more. That's when the third use of the term Israel came into use, as the name of the ten tribes comprising their northern kingdom. But both kingdoms, north and south, Judah and Israel, remained obligated to keep the covenant established at Sinai. In Amos 3, verse 2, the prophet reports God declaring, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. As last week's message made clear, uh, neither nation kept the covenant. This oracle that Amos has just declared here stresses not Israel's covenantal responsibility, obligation, but Yahweh's. He will keep the covenant he must punish Israel for their sins. The Israelites assumed God would always protect them and benefit the nation. They had forgotten that their covenant with him promised both blessing and curses. And much of Amos's ministry was devoted to dispelling their folly. Verse two begins by noting the unique position the nation of Israel occupies. But their unique privilege gave them greater responsibility. They were bound to God by covenant, and the covenant specified obligations on both parties. With covenantal privilege came covenantal accountability. This is the central message that Amos is conveying. Israel's privileged position is wonderful, but it is not just shelter. It has obligations for which they are being called to account. God's punishment would be an expression of his accountability to the covenant. The punishment they had earned was nigh at hand. Sin is desperately serious among the people of God. The heathen, those who don't know God, come under condemnation for violating conscience. Um, reference Roman 2. The people of God are triply guilty because they not only violate conscience but they disobey the commandments God has given them explicitly and they fail to requite the love that brought them into fellowship with him. (coughs) Excuse me. Their complacency obscures the dire state of their spiritual reality. If they recognize they've sinned, they may rationalize, hey, since he chose us will he not keep us come what may so god's covenant with israel requires that he punish their traitorous rebellion but stop and think for a moment what does that punishment mean is everyone that he punishes going to hell will no one make it to heaven well it depends uh, let's first think back and remember what we're told in 1 Timothy 2 that there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Paul's statement there reflects what Jesus declares in John 14:6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Acts 4, verse 12, records Peter's statement while he was on trial before the Sanhedrin. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Being the only man who ever lived a sinless life, only Jesus could be an acceptable sacrifice. Only he could suffer and die in the place of those who believed in him. Only by Jesus enduring God's punishment for our sin and us being imputed with his righteousness can anyone escape the eternal suffering in hell that we all deserve and then be reconciled to God, be adopted by God, and joyously spend eternity in his presence in heaven. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And the Old Testament didn't have a different gospel People under the Mosaic Covenant, including the people Amos was addressing, could also be served by faith in Christ. How is that? Well, that faith was a forward-looking faith based on God's promises that a Messiah or a Redeemer would come. There's 11 different scripture passages that point to this, and I'm glad to provide them to you on request, but I won't go through them now. Now, the Bible does go on to then list some Old Testament uh, people who were saved through faith in the Messiah. In Hebrews 11:13, which is speaking of Old Testament believers, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, it's, we read, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. A few verses further on, we read that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So they were looking forward to Christ. And in John 8, 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he could see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, God promises a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. We've looked at that recently. Uh, Under that new covenant, they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. So under the new covenant, God promises that everyone in the covenant would know him. But under the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, not everyone did know him. (coughs) Those... Someone could be born to Jewish parents and circumcised and be considered in God's covenant, but that does not mean that they were saved. Just as God must change a heart today before anyone can come to faith in Christ, God likewise had to change the hearts of Old Testament people to bring them from spiritual death to spiritual life. We see that in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. In both the Old and the New Testament, it is God that has to first change our hearts before we can come to a right relationship with God. Therefore, when the punishment decreed by Amos comes... It is the state of each person's heart will determine what happens to them. That's what I mean by it depends. Those who are not truly God's people will be purged from the community to die immediately or ultimately and go to hell. Those who are God's people will either suffer God's discipline to bring them to repentance or they will lose their lives but go to heaven. And even amongst the rampant sin of Israel, God always preserves a remnant of faithful worshipers. And we must assume that now of the people that Amos is speaking to. Those who do have faith in the coming Messiah will be thankful for the Lord's covenant. Will be thankful that the Lord's covenant includes punishment for sins. Precisely because he loves his people too much to allow them to sin without discipline. We see the blessing of discipline mentioned in uh, Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves whom he loves, as a father, the son, in whom he delights. You can find a fuller description of the Lord's discipline in Hebrews 12, chapters three through, uh, verses 3 through 11. A snippet of that passage says, What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons." So the Israelites should treasure the Lord's discipline. But let's pause for a minute and ask, well, how does this apply to believers today? I mean, after all, we know Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we're in Christ, we do not have to fear being condemned to hell. But that does not mean we will not be held accountable for our obligations as disciples of Christ under the New Covenant. There will be a believer's judgment. Jesus implies that with his statement in Luke 12, 48, that everyone to whom much has been given, of him much will be required. And you'll remember the parable of the talents as well. More more explicitly, we can clearly see a judgment of believers in Romans 14, verses 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. So that each, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Even more explicitly in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 15, we see, according to the grace God given, grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, There's other places in the Bible where you'll find evidence of a judgment of believers. They include Ecclesiastes 12 verse 14, 2 Corinthians 5:10, which Ronnie cited three weeks ago, and Hebrews 9:13. Again, that's Ecclesiastes 12:14, 2 Corinthians 5:10 and Hebrews 9:13. So, In light of our coming judgment by God, how should we live? How should you live? Do you have that sense? Do you recognize your accountability to God as a disciple of Christ? I think the Apostle Peter answers well in 1 Peter 1, verses 17 through 19. The fear Peter's speaking of is the fear of the Lord, which Proverbs tells us is the beginning of wisdom. Isaiah 66, two expresses his fear as trembling at God's words. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. Beloved, that's the best way we can pray for the account, pray. Prepare for the accountability we will experience when judged by God. We should all be regularly ingesting God's word and testing ourselves against it. We're told to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. And we examine ourselves not against our feelings, but against what God's word says. So this concludes our first course on covenantal accountability. As the second course, we'll consider next Amos three verses three through six, which tell us about the ultimate cause of the things that happen. Here, the prophet gives a Amos three three to six, please. There we go. Thank you, sir. Um, here, the prophet gives a series of examples from the natural world about cause and effect put in the form of rhetorical questions with an obvious answer. Um, The first five are pretty straightforward. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? No. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No. Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? No. Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? No. Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? No. The sixth may seem a little less clear. It says, Is a trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid? That's because we don't, the trumpets we hear blown in our city are people trying to raise money along Central Avenue, asking you to throw a few dollars into their tip bucket. but for things for Israel in this time in history, 760 BC, we're talking about, a trumpet blown in the city indicated the city was about to be attacked. So the answer has to be also be no. So, are you with me so far? Are you on board that all of these answers to these rhetorical questions is no? Then we come to the second half of uh, verse 6. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The implied answer is also no. For each question is really a pair of inseparable things. But this may get our theological minds churning a bit. I mean, does that mean that God is the author of evil? Many many Christians are unsettled. by a strong view of divine providence and divine sovereignty. They'd rather not think of God having anything to do with a disaster. Charles Spurgeon would tell them this. Some are foolish enough to believe that events happen without divine predestination and different calamities transpire without the overruling hand or the direct agency of God. Did you get that? He, he's saying that God either makes an event happen or allows the event to happen through the agency of others by not overruling them. God may allow an adversary to commit evil acts against Israel, to punish Israel, because Israel has earned that punishment. God may then separately punish such an adversary for their evil. The prince of Peter, preachers, Spurgeon, goes on to say, Chance exists only in the heart of fools. We believe that everything that happens to us is ordered by the wise and tender will of him who is our father and our friend. We see order in the midst of confusion. We see purposes accomplished. Others discern fruitless wastes. And that's the right way. And that's why we, we trust in God's promise in Romans 8.1 that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Even when at the time, it seems this cannot possibly be good. But this responsibility of God for disasters as well as blessings is consistent with his self-revelation. In Isaiah 45, verse 7, he says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. That does not mean God is the author of evil, but rather that he sovereignly brings disaster or adversity on individuals or nations as just punishment. Amos does not want Israel to think that the calamity that's about to befall them is an accident or a blind chance or a random act of nature. He clearly states that God will be the ultimate cause for any disaster that befalls Israel. The Lord's threat is not in vain. Okay, how are we to apply this truth? (coughs) Excuse me. We should remember and not be shy about saying, God is the ultimate cause for all that happens. As he declares in Isaiah 46, verses nine and 10, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. However, we must be cautious about saying why God allowed a disaster to happen. In the Romans 11 doxology, Paul says of God, How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. We don't hear the word inscrutable too often, but that means incapable of being investigated. The NASB translates this verse as, How unsearchable are his judgments, and unfathomable his ways. So for instance, we should never say something like, oh, Hurricane Ian devastated Fort Myers because the people there were so sinful. But we can understand the Lord's purposes when he reveals them. Amos' prophecy is one such revelation. We find another interesting one in John 9. Where there's a helpful interchange between Jesus and his disciples about a man born blind. The first three verses of John 9 read this way As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus then goes on to give the man sight, glorifying himself. To the great consternation of the Pharisees, we might know it. But God got the glory from this man having been born blind and then healed. So this concludes our consideration of the ultimate cause. Let's go on to the third course, Hearing from God. In Amos 3.7, we read, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophet. Um, That might make you scratch your head. Doesn't God execute many judgments that are hid from both men and even from angels? Yes, he does. Is Amos saying God is not free to do anything without previously revealing it to his prophets? No, he isn't saying that. As is always the case, we must consider context when we seek to understand what a scripture passage means. Amos is talking about a covenantal obligation. He's saying God does nothing by way of punishing his people for covenant violation without telling them. John Calvin sees doing, does nothing, those words, as meaning God will not treat you in an ordinary way, as he does with other nations, whom he chastises without speaking to them. God, in a paternal manner, kindly reminds you of your sins, shows you why he resolves to chastise you, and forewarns you that you may have time to seek and ask forgiveness. So how does this apply to us? Since we're in the new covenant and have covenantal obligations, as we've talked about already, Should we be on the lookout for prophecies that warn us of impending punishments for covenant violations? We already have them. God warns us through his word, the Bible. And that is what churches do by preaching the gospel of God, the word of God. The scriptures are given to us for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. God graciously warns us by his word and gives us time to repent. And besides being warned, we are to warn others outside the covenant. To state it mildly, warning others outside the covenant is not quite popular in our day. People don't even want to be told that there is a God who has spoken and who will judge them. Yet we are not faithful to our Lord if we do not sound this warning, if we do not declare the whole counsel of God. Finally, in Amos 3:8, we read, "The lion has roared, who will not fear. The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy." The lion has roared indeed. You will recall, recall Amos saying so back in Amos chapter one, verse two. "The Lord roars from Zion, and he utters his voice from Jerusalem." The pastors of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel weathers. And a prophet cannot ignore Yahweh's voice any more than sensible people ignore the roar of a lion. To be chosen as a prophet is to be obliged to, to, uh, to speak God's word. You may remember Jonah learning that the hard way. Amos's reaction to Yahweh's revelation was proper. He faithfully proclaimed to its intended audience what had been delivered to him by the Lord. Amos' hard words were not his own, but Yahweh's through him. Amos is warning the Israelites they should listen to the roar and repent. Sadly, that warning falls on deaf ears. Let's think again about application. What should we take away from this? The voice of the Lord also compels us to proclaim his word. As Paul declares in 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So you and I are to implore our neighbors on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just as Amos says that he can do nothing else but prophesy, our situation is described in 1 Corinthians 9.16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And woe to each of us as well. May we faithfully fulfill our obligation to Christ to be his ambassadors. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, I hope you'll perceive that hearing God's word is a precious gift. Perhaps you've been hiding from God. I pray you've heard God coming for you through his word this morning. When God's justice roars, and it will, how will it find you? When the heavens disappear and the final angel shouts, and we all appear before God's throne, what will God say to you? God cares. The question is, do you? Let's pray together. Sovereign Lord, your people gathered here humbly praise you for the immense gift you have bestowed on us, faith in your Son, our Lord Jesus. You tell us in 1 Peter 2.9 that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Thank you for this passage and this message, that if we do not obey your word, we should anticipate the teeth of your discipline, not, however, as punishment of your enemies, but as loving chastisement of your children. May we, by your grace, be faithful disciples, obeying you and loving our neighbors by sharing with them the precious good news of how they can be reconciled to you through faith in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we ask it all. Amen.